We're really excited to announce that our reopening services will begin May 2nd. We'll have one service only at 10 a.m. with limited capacity. Each week, we will open up online registrations on our website the Sunday prior at 9 a.m. For everyone joining at home, the live stream will be available at 10 a.m. Children's and Students Ministry will continue to be virtual with a future phased in-person restart. Hello, welcome back to Regeneration. We are in an Ephesians series. Um, the past few weeks, uh, it has been a slow go trying to get back into this series after our Lenten series. And so for this week, we will again do one verse just as we did last week, uh, but then we'll start speeding it up a little bit after we just get this kind of established before we go in. So today we'll be looking at Ephesians chapter 4, verse 5. And it's these oneness verses. One is mentioned seven times in three verses. Verses four through seven, it's mentioned seven times. Um, three times in, in verse four. And, and as we get into five, we're, we're going to just take a look at the, the oneness verses here. Now, prior to these verses, there's this verse in verse three that reads, To maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There are elements to maintain unity, which is found in verse 2. It reads this, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. Those are key components in unity, to unity. And we are in need of unity, especially in our communities today, in our nation. But, but the unity spoken of here in Ephesians is different than political unity or organizational unity or, or the unity that we typically think of. Ephesians is speaking of unity of the Spirit that is only found in Christ Jesus. Take a look at Ephesians chapter 2 starting in verse 4. But God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Jesus, And so that is some background to keep in mind as we look deeper here in verse 5 of chapter 4, which reads, One Lord, one faith, one baptism. That we have one Lord to whom we trust. One faith that we believe and profess. One baptism, that the sign Christians have to identify with Christ. So let's first take a look at one Lord. Jesus is Lord. That is one of the first Christian creeds that Christians ever had. It's what each one of my daughters, the very first words that I whispered in their ears right after they were born and I held them was, Jesus is Lord. Very first Christian creeds. Now, during the days of the Roman Empire, it was customary for Romans to greet one another with Caesar as Lord. 
Early Christians didn't adopt this greeting, and so came one of the earliest Christian creeds, Jesus is Lord. Romans chapter 10, verse 9. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And it's not simply just those words, Jesus is Lord, that saves us. Anybody can say those words. But you need to have a believing heart when you say those words, that that they mean something, that it's not just simply verbal words that are coming out of your mouth. Because even those who don't believe can just say this confession that Jesus Christ is Lord, but it doesn't mean anything. Philippians chapter 2, verses 9 through 11. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. When the Hebrew Bible, our Old Testament, was translated into the Greek, the the Septuagint, the, the translators needed to discern what word they would use for this most common name for God, Yehovah, or Yahweh. Yahweh, Yehovah, appear in the Old Testament, the Hebrew Bible, over 6,800 times. And so they needed a word, a Greek word for this to translate over, and they chose the word Kyrios. Kyrios is a title of divinity. And in the Greek New Testament, it appears over 700 times referring to the Lord Jesus. Lord is describing who Jesus is. And so an example of this translation, let's take a look at Isaiah chapter 45, which also ties into Philippians 2, which we just read. So look at Isaiah chapter 45, starting in verse 21. Declare and present your case. Let them take counsel together. Who told this long ago? Who declared it of old? Was it not I, the Lord? So Yehovah in Hebrew. And it's translated to Kyrios in the Greek for the Septuagint. Right? That's where that happens. And there is no other gods besides me. A righteous God and a Savior. There is none besides me. Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. By myself I have sworn, from my mouth has gone out in righteousness a word that shall not return. To me every knee shall bow, every tongue shall swear allegiance. And this is where Paul got Philippians 2 verse 11 from. He's quoting Isaiah 45, verse 23. Now back to Ephesians 4, where Paul writes about this oneness. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. We spoke about that last week. And then these mentioned in, in, in verse are the ones who have submitted to the one Lord. So these, these mentions of, of the one body, the one spirit, the one hope, the These are the ones who have submitted to the one Lord. Chapter 4, verse 5. Now a synonym for Lord is is master. Master. Someone who doesn't believe Jesus Christ as their Lord, they might take issue that they need to confess Jesus Christ is Lord. 
But I do need to remind us that this letter is addressed to those who trust in Jesus Christ. It's addressed to people who are are part of the one body, the, the, the church, God's bride. People who are indwelled by the one spirit. People who are called to be the one hope and and submissive to the one Lord. This letter is written to those who have confessed Jesus is Lord, believed in our heart that, that God raised Jesus from the dead to those who are saved. John chapter 1, verse 12, and reading through to verse 13. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. I bring this up because when people attempt to approach the supernatural with their natural faculties, they tend to think that they're in charge of what's happening. That there isn't a humility in that sort of approach because the natural person tends to approach God, who's supernatural, on their own time, which is natural, and on their own terms, which is natural. So you're trying to approach supernatural with natural when God is God, supernatural, and we are who we are, natural. Who do we think we are in this sort of a relationship? It is God who is holy, who is sinless, and it is us who are sinful, natural. And we don't approach God in our terms, in our time. It is God's mercy, God's grace that saves us who are dead in our trespasses. Take a look at Ephesians chapter 2, starting in verse 1. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. Everyone is dead in their trespasses and sins without Christ. Everyone. And it is only Christ who makes us alive to be born again. And this is what the the Pharisee Nicodemus wondered about. John chapter 3, starting in verse 3, going through to verse 7. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not marvel what I said to you, you must be born again. You see the distinction. What is natural is natural, what is supernatural is supernatural. And Nicodemus looked at this as a a natural man, rather than the supernatural act of being born again. And this is many people, including religious people, 
just like Nicodemus, who look at spiritual things with their natural eyes. And when you do that, you won't be able to see supernatural things. When you try to interpret things with your natural mind, you won't be able to fully understand the supernatural. It's not a matter of will to believe. You can't will yourself into it. You have to have faith because that's what it is. It's a matter of faith. And for some, they will get stuck on their intellectualism. They will get stuck on the natural senses that they have of seeing and touching. And, and, and you hear this quite often. I, I can't believe God because I, I, I can't hear him. I can't speak to him. I've never seen him. I've never touched him. And they get stuck in the natural world. And frankly, those people are just complicating things with their limitations. And oftentimes they want to do something. They want something to be proven to them. And so they want these things that involve their natural senses when all they really need is faith. A simple faith. A faith that decreases oneself and increases Christ. Faith, which is a gift from God. But there are things that can negatively impact faith, block faith, things such as arrogance. To believe in Christ is to belong to Christ, the one Lord. The believing in Christ and belonging to Christ will produce a behavior for Christ where we just are simply who we are. And as Christ Jesus is our Lord, we aren't at liberty to disagree with his teachings. If Jesus Christ is your Lord, you are not free to choose what you want to follow and what you don't want to follow because he is Lord. He is master. If Jesus Christ is your Lord, you don't have the authority to teach things contrary to his teachings. You are to teach what he taught. You are not permitted to disobey his commands. The, the, the test of our beliefs is in our behaviors. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 19 and 20. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you, you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. And this process of sanctification is exactly that. It's a, it's a process. We don't become Christ-like instantaneously. It kind of grows. It develops. It matures. 1 John chapter 3, verse 2. Beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. So, we have this salvation of one Lord for ourselves. What are we doing with it? Are we sharing this good news with those who don't know the gospel? 
as one body indwelt by one spirit with one hope? Are we sharing that hope in our one Lord? Knowing that everyone without Christ is dead in their trespasses, dead in their sins. Everyone will declare that Jesus is Lord. The question is whether they will be declaring that as a praise to Jesus with joy in their hearts, or will they be crying this out that Jesus is Lord out of anguish because they did it when they had a chance to. And now they recognize it and they have to, but it's not from a good standpoint. You and I wouldn't have this faith in Christ if it weren't for someone sharing it with us, whether it was our parents or our friends or whomever shared the gospel with you. You didn't just innately have it when you were born. And so you see that we need to share the gospel of Jesus is Lord because it is the only way that others can hear. It's the only way that Jesus uses to save. He uses us. One Lord, one faith. Faith is something that we all exercise. We put faith to the test all the time. Everyone does. Every time you get in a car or any transportation, you are exercising faith, aren't you? Every time you go to the dentist, you are exercising faith or any health professional. When you're getting that inoculation, the the vaccine, You are having faith that it works. You don't really know. Every time that you use a credit card or a debit card, you're you're using faith that that's going to go through. But this isn't the type of faith that Paul wrote about when he wrote one faith. This is not what he's talking about. How do we know this? Because each description of this oneness is addressing the unity in Christ. Each description of this oneness is an expression of the unity in Christ. So when Paul wrote one faith, he was not writing about just a natural faith like we have when we we drink water from the tap and and hope that we are not going to get sick from it. And we have faith in our municipalities to to take care of those things. No, he's not writing about things like that. He was writing about spiritual faith. Now how do we know what this spiritual faith is. Well, we need to look to the Word of God. And so let's look at Ephesians chapter 2, starting in verse 8. We'll read through verse 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Natural faith comes through natural birth. Spiritual faith comes from being born again. And that is a gift from God. Now how do you receive the gift of faith? Romans chapter 10 verses 13 through 17. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? So faith comes from hearing, and hearing through the word of Christ. 
This is what happened to the church in Ephesus. This is how you and I came to faith. And this will be how people in the future will come to faith. This is how it happens for everyone. This is how God has designed it. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 17. And he, Jesus, came and preached peace to you who were far off, Gentiles, and peace to those who were near, the Jews. Paul wrote about Jesus preaching to these Gentile Christians and, Gent and Jewish Christians in Ephesus. How is that? Jesus wasn't there. Jesus wasn't in person in Ephesus. So what was Paul then writing about? He was writing that, that Jesus Christ's gospel was preached to Ephesus through him and through others. And that is the same exact thing with us. That we are the ones to share the gospel of Jesus Christ. To preach peace where we are currently at now, in time and in place. That we throw out that seed and that God is the one who grows that seed. So there's nothing for us to boast about in our evangelism efforts. Because it's God. It is God who's, who's giving grace. Giving mercy. It's not our gift we're giving. We are giving God's gift. We are preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. And when we receive it, received as God's gift, the gift of salvation, they're saved. And it's not just simply hearing it, there has to be a belief which is tested with behavior. Matthew chapter 7, verses 24 through 27. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell and great was the fall of it. The evidence of faith is that you still have faith. You haven't let it go. That you hear the word of God and you do it. You haven't let go of that faith. Hebrews chapter 3 verse 14. For we have come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. You and I have known or know so many people who have let go of their faith. And yet you have held firm by the grace of God. Now some of you may be gripping more loosely or gripping more tightly. It's all over the place, but you still have it. You haven't let go of it. What is faith? Hebrews tells us a ton about faith. Let me just read one verse from there. Hebrews 1 verse 11. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. We looked at the one hope last week, so we don't have to th talk about hope. You can listen to that again. But this is the faith in which we as believers are united to. And the unbeliever doesn't understand this because they are stuck in their natural state of 
seeing things and understanding things that they can't spiritually see and they can't spiritually understand these things. They're spiritually blind to these things. It's one Lord, one faith, and then here's our last one for today, one baptism. Before we wrap up verse 5, we need to know who we are in Christ. Not in a narcissistic way when someone says, like, hey, do you know who I am? Not, not like that, right? But to know that you are united in Christ and you no longer are who you used to be. Now, most of you listening are American citizens. And you might not like what's going on in America. You might not even feel very good about being an American but you are who you are and there are privileges to that citizenship and you can't just rid of it. And if you are in Christ, you are who you are with privileges of belonging to Christ. That it's your identity even though you might not be proud of it because of representation of the church or you might not feel totally together with it because of things being done. But we have an identity that is shared with others who are united in Christ, in union with Christ, and in communion with each other, that our unity in Christ is the focus of this part of chapter 4. So let's take a look into this one baptism. And let's start with looking at 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 13 with that backdrop of understanding that this is about unity. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 13, For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. And you'll notice that that verb baptized is in a passive tense, that it's not, it's not something active that we did. It was something done to us, not by us. And, and you read here that it started out with division. So Jews, Greeks, slaves, free, different races, different classes, right? But all were baptized into one body, united in Christ, and all were made to drink of one spirit, which is a very mysterious thing to happen. And it's what Paul wrote about in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 13 and 14. In him, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Yes, we are forgiven. And there's more. We're saved. And there's more. That there is a transformation in their life and that they move from death to life. And this work that the Holy Spirit did is described as baptism. That they were baptized into Christ. So this doesn't seem to me to be a reference to the sacrament of water baptism that we did just a couple of weeks ago at our Easter service. It seems to me that Ephesians chapter 4 verse 5, the, the one baptism, is to be likened to 1 Corinthians chapter 12 verse 13 in that We've been brought through a spiritual change, a, a transformation into a relationship with Christ. 
So it seems to me that the sacrament of water baptism is addressed elsewhere in the Bible, but that's not specifically what it's talking about here in chapter 4, verse 5. The one baptism here is this shared reality, while that sacrament of baptism is this individually experienced and, and it's experienced differently by individual people. This one baptism is all of us and talking about that transformational change in all of us. Take a look at Romans chapter 6, starting in verse 4. We'll, we'll read through to verse 4. What shall we then say then? Are we to continue to sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Now again, notice that the baptism in verse 4 is passive. It was done to us, not done by us. Not like the sacrament where we choose to do that. Baptism is to point to Jesus, not to ourselves. Baptized in Christ. That that is our identity, who we are in Christ, to know who we really are. Not because we are, are baptized into the sacrament of baptism, symbolizing what we have done, but that baptism, the one baptism, highlights what has been done for us. Baptism is about who Jesus is. And by continuing in sin... It's obvious a person doesn't know what it means to be in Christ and what that one, one baptism means or is. The uniting to Christ, the death to sin, and, and no longer under the power of sin. Before Christ, we, we were enslaved to it. We were slaves to sin. There, there was no choice. And you couldn't choose differently. You had to choose sin. It's just who you were, dead in trespasses and sins. But in Christ, alive with Christ, things have changed. That one baptism has changed you, and not because of you, and because that you changed out of your own will, and you're willing to change, but it's because of Jesus Christ, and that you are in Christ. You are no longer who you once were, because you've been baptized into the unity with Christ. That Christ did it, not you. You've been moved from this enslavement to sin to the kingdom of God. Now remember, it's after knowing all of this indicative doctrine from chapters 1 through 3 and this first part of chapter 4, before any imperative instructions of what we are to do, which are going to come later in chapter 4. We, we have some of them now, but it's going to come down heavy later on. But the first thing to know is who we are in Christ before we start practicing what to do and telling people what to do as opposed to telling people who they are in Christ. That's a big mistake that we do as Christians. We have these expectations that people will behave like Christians before they even believe what Christians believe. And so what that causes is just 
burden and discouragement and frustration for people who have not believed. People will wonder how they'll even do what you're asking them to do as believers when they don't believe, and they can't. It's impossible to do that. They'll wonder that, you know, I have to be a completely different person than who you've asked me to be in order to do this stuff. Exactly. Exactly. That is exactly what needs to happen. You need to become a different person. One baptism. And then from that, when you understand who you are in Christ, then you will be equipped, empowered to do these things that God has instructed us to do. They need to know this doctrinal stuff first before they do anything. In Christ, you're a new person. You have a new identity. You just need to be who you are. Be who you are in Christ. And out of your new identity, that determines what you do. What you do does not determine this identity because you cannot earn, you cannot, you cannot gain access to Jesus, access to God by what you do. Naturally. It is a supernatural work and it is a supernatural faith that will draw you to God and then you can do the things that he has instructed us to do. Now of course, you'll continue to deal with sin but you're not going to be any longer enslaved to sin. And those temptations of sin, of course they will be there but you are in Christ and sin has lost its power on you. Who you are here will move you into practice here. And we need to understand that doctrine and, and, and the primary means to understanding doctrine is to study the word of God, is to hear the word of God preached. That's why it's so important for us here to go through the Bible, preaching the Bible, because the Bible is the map that will guide us. It is the food that is going to feed us. It's why biblical preaching is so important for the church, and it supplements your study of the Word of God. If you are just depending on this once-a-week nourishment, you're not going to be adequately nourished. We all need to study throughout the week. And, and the church needs to continually supply the preaching and teaching of the Bible to further nourish the body. We need to know who we are. We need to know who we are in Christ. And then we will be able to live accordingly. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for your grace. Thank you for your mercy. Thank you for showing us who you are, who we are. And I pray, Lord, that we don't overburden people with behaviors 
and these moralities that we have and these ethics that we have without showing who you are. We pray, God, that we would be able to show your love, your mercy, your grace, your peace, your joy to people, that they would receive you as Lord. Lord, equip your church to do this. Equip us, Regeneration, to do this in the Bay Area. In Jesus' name, amen. Please uh, take out your communion elements and let's take communion with each other. The bread symbolizing the body of Christ broken for us, this one body that we are as a church with the one spirit indwelling in us because of the one hope that we have as called people of Christ. to our one Lord, this one faith, and the one baptism that has changed us, transformed us. We take this in the unity of that spirit. We know of the sacrifice of Christ and this fruit of the vine symbolizing the blood of Christ spilled for us. That he died for us so that we may have communion with God, with each other, that we have a hope to be looking forward to. And so as you consider taking this sacrament, please Consider and pray and, and even refrain from it if you have a resentment, a bitterness, a hatred towards someone. That you would take care of those things, that we would take communion in an honorable way. And so as we sort through these things, I, I know that there is always sin as a temptation for people. And it's not asking for perfection, otherwise we wouldn't need to take this sacrament. But to be postured towards repentance, postured in humility towards faith, God's will, and obedience to Him. And as you are positioned in that way, your heart is positioned in that way, and you have a heart of God, then we welcome you to partake in this. Lord Jesus, we... Thank you for these symbols of who you are and your promise, Lord, that you're coming back for us. And we continue to participate and partake in this sacrament until your return. We have a hope that is certain and we know that you're coming back for us in Jesus' name. Amen.